Chapter Ten of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: The Final Polish, a One-Horse Township, in the Island Again. Detailed for Aldershot, the Old Guard. Now came a day of fearful excitement and anticipation. Not an order for the division to leave, but a much more delicate hint that departure was at hand. Sun helmets were issued all round. They spelt two things, the east and early departure likely. All was joy. The months of mud and training were nearly over, and now for the war. I was still on light duty, so was a bit nervy as to what my chances were of being allowed to go with them. I hoped for the best and looked forward with a buoyant interest to the departure. The time was now entirely filled up, so far as I was concerned, in machine-gun firing on the ranges. We were served out with great masses of practice ammunition and a full rig-out of guns, so the machine-gun end of the butts gave forth a splendidly nerve-shattering rattle for the surrounding neighborhood until we left. The inhabitants of Sutton Veeney, however, had no hope of escape. We were not the first division to be there, nor were we to be the last. When we left, another division took our places. The weather was terribly wet. We stood about in pouring rain, squirting lead into the hillside from our maxims for about a week. The entire division was firing all day long in ceaseless practice until the word came for departure. As is the way with all military movements, you never know exactly what is going to happen till it happens. Suddenly, all the sun helmets were called in. Hello! Egypt off, everyone thought, and they were quite right. The soldiers didn't mind where they went as long as they went somewhere. They were all for up and at em now. They would willingly part with all the simple little joys provided by the neighboring township of Warminster. They would cheerfully relinquish the pleasures of penny shows and cheap cinemas which grew thickly in the neighborhood. What they wanted now was to have a real live tryout of their skill and energy combined with all the romantic attraction of foreign parts. Every evening when work is over, the one idea possessing the minds of all soldiers is to walk into the nearest town. This crowd that I was with walked into Warminster, which was only about three miles distant from our huts. Apart from this, Warminster had little else to recommend it. In the dark winter evenings, with its anti-Zeppelin lighting arrangements and squalid streets, this little one-horse township presented as rotten and unattractive appearance as you could wish for. It served as a very good incentive to hurry back to the camps at the time requested by the authorities. The road from Sutton Veeney to Warminster was, at about 6 p.m., almost a solid mass of soldiers, all walking in to partake of the meager delights of the town. A few movable sideshows, seeking to add to the paucity of Warminster's attractions, had taken root in the fields on either side of the road. A few men were seduced off into these places, lured by the light of a naphtha flare, or the exaggerated announcements shouted out by a half-caste negro showman. The bulk of the division, however, got down into Warminster itself and flooded out the various cinema palaces. Rain, soldiers, mud and poor lighting, gaudy-fronted cinemas with Charlie Chaplin posters, those are my impressions of Warminster. I went down several times whilst I was at Sutton Veeney. I suppose even now it is still the same old thing. Now that our departure was imminent, I went down more frequently. It seemed to look a bit brighter somehow. Brighter, I suppose, because we were leaving. Anyway, the vast congealed mass of soldiers on the road were brighter. They knew they were going, and that was all they wanted. 
In a few days they left, and a finer division never went anywhere. About half of it was composed of Scottish regiments. So when the whole lot took to the road with their bands and pipes playing and skirling, the division presented as fine an assortment of British army types as one could wish to see. The east was off, as the sun-helmet episode had foreshadowed, and now it was to be France. On the day of departure I got my orders. I was not to go with them, as I had only been attached and did not belong to the division. Where was I to go? Back to the Isle of Wight, they said. I could have cried my eyes out, as they say of children. The Isle of Wight again. Oh, help! I should have liked to rush into the headquarters and to fling myself at the feet of the general imploring him to stay this dread sentence. Instead of which, I walked away amongst the huts and pondered on the advisability and possibility of stowing away in a machine-gun case or a blanket wagon, and thus getting over. The Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight. Oh, curse the... No, I won't say it again. The division went. So did I, and although I didn't know it at the time, I too was to be in France within three weeks. I sorrowfully trekked off back to the island and rolled up to the red brick barracks on the square again. Things hadn't changed much. Several officers had gone, others had come, and the roll of honor in the anteroom had grown a bit longer. Somehow I found the island was not now so objectionable as I had anticipated. Couldn't make this out at the time, but I know what it was now. I was feeling better myself. My nerves were settling into a more placid condition. Sutton Veeney had done good. I had been a long time in getting right after my knockout at Ypres, far longer than I knew myself at the time. I became quite exuberant in the island on this tour, took a lively and active part in a series of soldiers' gaffes, which were held in the barracks. Merry shows these were. You suddenly find on these occasions that quite half the regiment are comedians. When feeling particularly hilarious, I am induced to give a song. And when I do, it always takes a comedy turn. Red nose, bowler hat, and umbrella effect, I find, is about my mark when I'm roped into a soldier's gaff. We were now having these convivial meetings about once a week, and I was invariably to be found at them. Huge audiences crushed their way into the large gymnasium and sang the choruses through clouds of smoke. Sometimes we took these shows over to one of the towns on the island, and one particular occasion I remember well when we did a show at Ride. The proceeds were, of course, for charity, and at this entertainment my job was to draw lightning sketches on the stage to be auctioned amongst the audience. Yes, I was altogether much brighter on my second return to the Isle of Wight. Just when I was really thinking that, Jove, this isn't half a bad place. I got orders to join a works company and take them to Aldershot. It's a curious thing that you always seem to like a place best when you know you've got to leave it. Join a works company and go to Aldershot. That didn't sound particularly attractive. I went to influential quarters and tried to get a reprieve. No good. Had to go. The works company was a sort of company used for doing odd jobs and dirty work such as carrying uninteresting military objects from one place to another, clearing up mangled roads and being generally useful. Sort of scene-shifters and stage-carpenters to the army. They were non-combatants. Wouldn't have been able to be combatants if you'd paid them any amount. No doubt they had all fought splendidly in the Crimea, but I could see at a glance they would never wield a battle-axe against Prussian militarism. Dear old chaps they were. 
but taking them to Aldershot caused me great anxiety. I managed to get to Southampton without losing any in the Solent, but when arrived there had unfortunately very little time to catch the train which left the station a long way from the docks. This brought on a sort of rout of the company down the main streets of Southampton. Napoleon's retreat from Moscow appearance, or Chelsea pensioners' hundred yards handicap at the annual sports. It was a fearful rush. But thanks to the RTO who kept the train back a little, we caught it, baggage and all, and glided off to Aldershot. We arrived at Farnborough and apparently weren't in the least expected. We waited about for a bit, hoping for someone to say something about us, but as nothing happened, I lined the old guard up outside the station, stood them at ease, and went off to telephone in all directions to find out who would like a works company. In about a couple hours' time, I found that the aerodrome at Farnborough wanted one. A lot of aerial goods had to be shifted. I took the company along to this place about a mile and a half away. Here in a worn-out field were a set of empty bell tents. We collared those tents and the company collapsed inside them in batches of ten. I went and reported the arrival of the company, found out what they were to do and when they had to start, and then set about arranging for their life there. It was first of all necessary to see about rations for them, also plates and cups and knives and things. Here was a works company, homeless and destitute as it were. Nobody knew and nobody cared. We had nothing but a set of old bell tents pitched in a squalid field of the sort that you generally find round a gas works. I went off that evening to Aldershot, and by visiting several offices eventually obtained a permit to get a camp equipment at a certain store. I and the driver of a motor lorry I had got hold of spent a heated hour packing assorted bowls, plates, knives, and forks into the lorry, and wrapping the lot up in straw. We then returned and tackled the local canteen for food. The outfit was now complete and the works company was saved. That night I got an empty room in one of the huts at the aero stores, and rolling out my valise on the floor in the corner, went to sleep. I awoke early as the floorboards were particularly hard in that hut somehow. A valise on the ground is all right, but is mighty hard on floorboards. I lay awake, thinking. Very much fed up with prospects now, I was. I took another gold flake from the yellow packet always beside me and inhaled it as an antidote to temper. Curse this aerodrome. Why can't I go to France? I wish I had gone with that division. Later I rose and went on with my job of seeing to the welfare of the works company. End of chapter 10. Recording by Philip Gould.